Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point, Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. In recent months, there have been several reports outlining the online risk to people's reputations. For example, in April, New York Times reporters Aaron Krulik and Kashmir Hill had an article entitled The Slander Industry that documented how several individuals spread personal lies about other people and then got this material highlighted in search engines. In addition, once your reputation is damaged in that way, some of these very same perpetrators would go to the victim seeking money in order to restore the person's online reputation. A few months ago, there was another article by Cashman Hill entitled A Vast Web of Vengeance that revealed how one individual systematically attempted to destroy the reputation of a Canadian man by plastering his online presence with accusations that he was a pedophile, thief, and fraudster. That clearly was very damaging to him and shows the risk facing people today from the wild west known as the internet and social media. Digital sliming is real, and it is just one more risk we face in the digital world. To discuss these problems of online reputation, we are pleased to be joined by Quinta Jurecic. She is a fellow in our Governance Studies program at Brookings and the former managing editor of the Lawfare blog. She also is co-host of the Arbiters of Truth podcast on disinformation and misinformation, and she writes about many challenges of life in the digital era. So, Quinta, welcome to our Brookings Tech Take podcast. Good to be here. So, you have written many articles about the risks of the online world. This includes issues as wide-ranging as disinformation, misinformation, and revenge porn, among other topics. We all live much of our lives online. What concerns you about how the digital world has developed in recent years? What's interesting to me is how I think in in recent years, as you say, we've gone from having a, a relatively sunny, optimistic view of what the internet offers and what it could be to something that's a lot bleaker and perhaps more frightening. The early years of the internet, even I would say maybe as as recently as 2010, 2014, there's still this techno-utopianism, this idea that the internet is going to connect everyone, it's going to be wonderful, it's going to break down all these different social and political hierarchies and barriers. People can access any information they want in a second. And one of the things that has really struck me in recent years is I would say after news of Russian election interference over the internet in the 2016 U.S. election, there's really been a shift in the public mood. I would say within the United States, but also in certainly in, in Europe as well, and arguably um, elsewhere across the world, where this optimism and excitement about the possibilities of connection offered by the internet has shifted toward maybe more trepidation, a sense that maybe all this connection is perhaps uh, a problem problem, not unilaterally uh, a good thing. And there are many different aspects to this. As you said, I've written about problems with the online information ecosystem, so problems where falsehoods, lies, travel across the web because people uh, it appeals to people or 
they're publishing them for for some reason, even though they know that they're false. There are issues, as as you just mentioned, where people can be abused and harassed online very easily, and it's hard to find recourse. These issues are not entirely new. They've always been there, right? I mean, if you speak to any woman, really, who was online in the sort of the early days of the internet in the 1990s and the early 2000s, they will tell you that it was not a particularly pleasant place, that it was very hostile to them. But it really feels like in the last five years or so, this idea of the internet as maybe fundamentally a dangerous and hostile environment has become more mainstream. And the idea that I've been seeing more and more is sort of a notion that maybe this level of of interconnection and the speed with which we can all be connected to millions of other people, that level of scale is not something that people are used to or able to really conceptualize. And a lot of the problems that that you mentioned that we're going to talk about here stem from that, this ability to, with without any friction and at massive scale, spread information that may be true but harmful or may have no no connection to the truth whatsoever. So I like that concept of techno-utopianism. That, and I do have to say that seems a, a distant memory at this point. It wasn't that long ago where we did have this optimistic vision of the internet. But as you point out, a lot of people feel more pessimistic about the internet. There are lots of lies and misinformation online, lots of risks and lots of dangers. And I think you're completely right that vulnerable populations are especially at risk and they've already suffered a number of different problems. So talk to me a little bit about the personal risks that individuals face. As noted in our introduction, there seems to be a new industry developing that is being called digital sliming or the slander industry. So how do its perpetrators operate and what should people be worried about? So as you say, the, the slander industry is the, the New York Times' this nice little capsule description of this strange situation where uh, people will suffer from negative, often false information being posted about them online on what the Times describes as complaint sites. So essentially websites that present themselves specifically as forums for people to share negative information about others. I think the, the most prominent of these sites, which listeners may have already heard of, is called Ripoff Report. And so often these sites will charge people to have information taken down. So if if you post something negative about me on some like cheatersandliars.com or some some other website I just made up that I can go to the site and say, this isn't true, like, please take this down. And they'll say, well, we'll take it down, but you have to pay us a certain amount of money. And sometimes the as the Times investigation showed, there's a little more complicated of a relationship where, you know, I'll go to that website and I'll see an ad that says, get your information removed <laughs> from these websites for only a, a little fee with a reputation management firm. And one of the really interesting things that the Times found is that sometimes these reputation management firms are completely disconnected from these complaint sites but sort of are able to profit from the existence of the sites by giving people or presenting people with an apparent route to get this information taken off. But sometimes there appears to be actually connections between the complaint sites and the sort of reputation management sites where it seems a little bit like a person or a company is both running websites that allow people to post defamatory things and running a service that removes the defamatory things from those websites, which I think gets to 
the industry aspect of the little New York Times like calling it the slander industry, there's a little bit of a circular motion happening here where it's self-perpetuating and how it, it drives itself. So that does seem to be a classic approach of playing both sides of the street where these sites first slander you and then charge you to remove the information. I mean, that clearly would be a blatant abuse, and we seem to be seeing a lot of that. So you also have written an article about revenge porn. So what is that, and why is that so worrisome? Right. So revenge porn, which some people may also have heard of, uh, described as non-consensual pornography, which is a, a term that's becoming a little more common. It's essentially, I would describe it as a distribution of intimate images without the consent of the person pictured. And it's sometimes called revenge porn because it can be used as a revenge tactic by a former romantic partner, say. So you can imagine a number of ways in which this happens. One way is, let's say, I'm in a relationship with someone. I share a photo of myself with them that's just meant to be shared with them. We break up or they're angry at me for some reason, and they respond by posting that intimate photograph, which was only meant for them, to the internet or sharing it with their friends, right, or sending it to my workplace or something like that. There are also other instances in which people obtain intimate images that the person pictured didn't even know were taken by surreptitiously taking a photograph through accessing a computer illegally or just taking a picture of someone when they're, they're not aware of it. And as you can see, it's a pretty significant problem. It's a real violation of privacy. Danielle Zittrin, whose work I'd recommend to anyone listening to this podcast and who's at the University of Virginia, calls this a, a violation of, of sexual privacy, a sort of intrusion on the really intimate life of the person pictured by the person who is distributing this photo or this video. And it can have really negative effects. There are lots and lots of stories which Danielle has chronicled in great depth of people who had really personal material shared by former partners, by people who wanted to get get revenge on them for whatever reason. And it makes it difficult to get a job, right? To make new friends, just have an independent online presence. Benjamin Wittes, who's a senior fellow at the Brickus Institution, and I a few years ago also wrote a paper on something called sextortion with Cody Poplin and Clara Spira, which is a, a related problem. So sextortion is related to non-consensual pornography, but instead of distributing the intimate image, it's there's a threat of distributing the intimate image, essentially saying, if you don't pay me $2,000, I'll post this photo on the internet. Or if you don't take another photo of yourself and send it to me, I'll post this photo on the internet. And one of the things that we found while writing our report is that local law enforcement often doesn't respond very much to these kinds of incidents because it's very easy for someone not familiar with the internet to say, well, you know, what's the problem? It's just online. It doesn't make a difference. But the people who have been the victim of these kinds of things, many of whom are adult women. So it really is a kind of, of sexual violence against adult women and against male and female teenagers and children feel exposed and feel violated in a very similar way that they would if they had been physically assaulted. There's one incredibly sad account by a young woman who had had intimate photos of her posted online who said that she was scared to walk down the street because she didn't know if anyone she saw on the street might have seen her naked. And I think that really speaks to just how 
violating this can be, even though it's in the online space rather than the physical world. I mean, I should also say, to emphasize my point earlier, this and the slander industry, in one sense, they're not new problems, right? People have always spread nasty rumors about one another. There's a long history of people threatening to damage prominent figures by telling secrets about their intimate lives. But what's new now is the the scale and the ability to which you can spread that information quickly. You know that this young woman, it's not just five people she knows who know about this. It's potentially anyone that she sees on the street over the entire world. And I think that really speaks to just the scope of the problem here. Yeah, all that is incredibly shocking and obviously can have profound consequences for the individual involved, point out the possible job consequences, certainly the emotional ramifications for uh, those individuals, all that is uh, highly problematic. So in the slander industry article in the New York Times that I uh, referenced by Acrylic and Hill, the abuse came from websites whose business model was based on ruining people's reputations. So can you describe some of the abuses that were revealed in those articles? The New York Times stories here are really astonishing for what they uncover. So I'll start with the Kashmir Hills article that's called A Vast Web of Vengeance, which I think is maybe the most extreme example. So she writes about a man in England whose name is Guy Babcock, who became the victim of a harasser who essentially just posted lie after lie about him and his family members online saying that they were thieves, sex criminals, pedophiles. It later turns out that according to law enforcement, the posts were being created by a Canadian woman who had been employed by Babcock's family years ago and had a grudge against them. But so Babcock first starts hearing about this because people he know reach out to him and say, I don't know if you've Googled yourself recently, but there's all this horrible information there about you. And as we mentioned in terms of job prospects, Hill writes that Babcock was particularly worried about his young nephew who's just starting out in his career, whether this young man is going to be able to get a job if people find all this horrible material on him whenever they Google him. So in the Babcock case, he had to trace down what was happening himself and figured out that this really cascade of negative posts and lies about him were, were all coming from this woman who he'd had a brief business relationship with a few years ago. But I think that the fact that he had to engage in this solo mission to figure out what was going on really speaks to how hard it can be to figure out how to dig yourself out of this hole that you can sometimes find yourself in if something like this happens to you. So then there's a, a subsequent New York Times article, which you mentioned on the, on the slander industry, where Hill and her fellow reporter, Aaron Krolik, experiment with what happens if they post a false claim about themselves on one of these websites. And they discover that what happens is that there's a network of sites that will copy the original negative posts, which bumps that bad news that this person is a liar and a cheater up in their Google results. And after that, they start getting ads for these reputation management sites that we mentioned that will say, if you pay us, we'll, we'll help remove these negative posts. And as I mentioned, the reporters found information suggesting that in at least one case, some of the reputation management services and the websites hosting negative content may actually be owned by the same person. And that gets to the industry part that we were talking about. So clearly there are huge problems here. So let's discuss some of the options people have when this happens. So one avenue uh, certainly would be legal recourse in which you sue the perpetrator or you get prosecutors to indict them. 
What is the state of the law in regard to these kinds of laws? For example, I think in the Canadian case that you just referenced, the perpetrator was charged with harassment and libel. That's correct. She was. And I think that does speak to how the criminal law can be useful here, although I'm not as familiar with the the Canadian context. So in the United States, one of the odd things about these situations is that in, in many cases, the problem is not actually a lack of legal tools available to help people. It is a question of the willingness or the ability or the capacity of law enforcement to use those tools. So in the United States, there are laws against extortion. There are laws against stalking. In the study that I conducted with Benjamin Wittes, Cody Poplin, and Clara Spira, we found sextortion cases that were charged as extortion and stalking under federal law. And the technology journalist Sarah Jung noted on Twitter in response to the Hill and Krolik articles that the federal extortion statute actually seems to be a a pretty good fit for the business models of these websites that operate by putting up negative material and then asking you for money to be taken down. Like that certainly sounds colloquially what we would call extortion. So the problem, again, in the United States context is that there are issues on both the federal and state level. So on the federal level, I think the, the problem is at least in part one of capacity and scale. There are just so many of these instances in which someone is harassed and abused online in this way. And there are just a limited amount of federal agents out there to do this work. The FBI is a big organization, but there's a lot to be done. And so these cases may not be a priority for the Bureau. Then on the state level, the problem is often that law enforcement may not understand or care about the harms that this kind of abuse can cause. There's a a really striking story written in, in 2014. So several years ago now by the journalist Amanda Hess in Pacific Standard Magazine, where she writes about receiving rape threats online, going to the local police, and the responding officer asks her, you say that you got these threats on Twitter. What is Twitter? And I think that that speaks to the knowledge gap here, right? So on the federal level, there's not a knowledge gap. The the FBI really does know and care about these online abuses, but may just not have the capacity to go after all of them. On the state level, the problem really may be that officers don't have the capacity to run this down, but also may not understand what it is or why it matters. No, that's very helpful to get the background. I mean, it's shocking that someone in law enforcement would not know what Twitter is, uh, and that certainly would create a big barrier to enforcement of those types of laws. Another avenue is social media platforms and search engines voluntarily taking down material found to be harassment or predatory in nature. For example, Google recently announced it was going to change its algorithms to stop slander sites from being included in its search results. How viable is that option as a way to protect people? This development from Google is extremely interesting. So the Times reported on June 10th that seemingly in response to the Times' previous reporting, Google has developed a concept that they're calling known victims. The way that that works is that a person can fill out a form on Google's website that's requesting removal of this defamatory content from one of these complaint sites that will result in Google taking that material off from search results. And and actually, I should say, this isn't new. Uh, Google has actually had this policy since since 2018, although many people didn't know about it. But the new part is that once someone requests removal from one site, Google will also suppress similar content posted by other websites. So for someone like Guy Babcock, who was defamed not just on one site, but on an enormous amount of sites, might be able to theoretically wipe most or all of those results off Google searches of his name just by 
filling out this one form. And this is really important because it means that theoretically, there's no longer going to be as much of a benefit to sites constantly reposting negative content posted elsewhere, which is really a key element of this cycle. Google also wrote that it's been downranking websites and search results that host these negative posts generally. And so, and according to a Google blog post, the company is going to push down in the search results content that comes from these exploitative websites from which users have requested that content be removed. So if someone tries to defame me on one of these websites, theoretically, the content, if it shows up at all, might be on the fourth page of my Google search results instead of the first page. I do think that this is potentially a pretty big deal. The Times wrote that they they ran new searches for some of the people who had been victims of these websites and found that some or most of the negative content had disappeared from at least the initial page of search results and from Google Images. So that, that doesn't mean it's perfect, right? And the, the Times notes that new websites could pop up that aren't yet known to Google and won't be demoted. And victims need to know that they can fill out this form, which has proven to be a, a problem in the past. Although I do wonder whether this, this string of reporting will raise awareness about its existence. I, I should also say Google's decision raises, I think, a, a fair amount of thorny questions about do we want a giant tech company like Google playing this role in curating and ranking search results? But I don't want to downplay the potential concerns there. But this does seem like a change that could potentially help a lot of people who have been caught in the cycle that we're discussing. So one of the major issues in the United States is Section 230 of the Communications Act, which was a law passed more than two decades ago. And it places major barriers in the way of someone who wants to sue the Internet platform that hosts sites that engage in this or other kinds of actions. What is Section 230 and how does it make it very difficult to sue an Internet platform? Yeah, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act comes up a lot in these discussions, as you say. The statute says that websites are not civilly liable in state and federal court and not criminally liable in state court for third-party content posted on their services. The example that I usually use is that, let's say, you post something defamatory about me on Twitter. I can sue you for defamation, but I can't sue Twitter. And to some extent, the same is true of these websites hosting negative content, right? If you post something negative about me, I can sue you for posting that, but I can't sue the website. And this is important because it limits my ability as a hypothetical victim of your defamation just to go after the website and try to hold it accountable. And in fact, one of the most prominent sites of this type, Ruff Report, which I mentioned, actually explicitly states on the website, more or less, don't try to sue us, where we're shielded by Section 230. That said, I do think it's important to keep in mind what role Section 230 doesn't play here. It's often discussed in these conversations as kind of like a boogeyman statute that is responsible for all evil. I don't want to discount the harms and the frustrations that it does cause to people who are victims of these kinds of scams, but it is important to be specific. So as I noted, Section 230 does not shield websites from charges in federal criminal court. So let's say the federal government decided to investigate and bring criminal charges against one of these websites, say, for extortion of people, for forcing them to pay money to take things down. Section 230 would not protect them. And I think that's that's really important because it means that there are limitations in federal civil court but not in federal criminal court. And that gets to what I was saying in terms of there being a question here just in terms of how much resources law enforcement has, where their focus is, and the fact that they may not be focusing on this as a priority. 
So are there ways to reform Section 230? So, for example, some people have called for an outright repeal, so that would clear the way for lawsuits. Others have proposed a limited liability on the part of the platforms. And we also have an example of carving out specific areas where lawsuits can take place, which happened recently in terms of human trafficking sites. So are any of these viable ways to think about that particular barrier? There's been a, a lot of discussion lately about reforms with Section 230. I'm just going to focus here on how reform could relate to the kind of harassment we've been discussing, because there are a lot of other issues that it touches on as well. So as you say, there are proposals for outright repeal. If you imagine an internet with a with no Section 230 whatsoever, you could imagine that that makes it obviously a lot easier for me as a victim of defamation to go and sue one of these websites, try to get damages, see if I can shut the website down. That might sound appealing. On the other hand, I also think we have to keep in mind that Section 230 is what allows a lot of the third-party content that makes the internet what we know and love, right? So if there's no Section 230, you might not be able to have comments on your blog, right? Because you could be worried about getting sued, or a small internet startup might not end up getting going at all because they could be worried about liability. Maybe bigger platforms like Facebook and Twitter could be fine because they have the money to fight any litigation. We should not underestimate the extent to which getting rid of 230 altogether would really change the scope of the internet and throw the baby out with the bathwater in a very real way. So then there are also proposals to require more from platforms in order to receive liability, essentially saying this isn't just something that you get automatically. If you host third-party content, we're going to ask something from you. So Danielle Zittrin and Benjamin Wittes have proposed a reasonableness standard where platforms would have to take reasonable action against bad actors on their services in order to receive immunity. There are plenty of other proposals. One that I think is is interesting and was recently reintroduced is the, the PACT Act from Senator Brian Schatz. And one of the requirements that it would have is that platforms would be required to remove content in a certain amount of time if they received a court order saying that content was illegal and it had to be taken down. And that would include content under federal criminal and civil law and also state defamation law. So you could see how that might be useful, for example, if I'm going to sue a platform because you defamed me on it, that I could actually end up getting a court order saying, no, you really have to take this down if you want to preserve your immunity under Section 230. Then, as you said, there, there are proposals for carve-outs based on subject matter. Some of these proposals focus on, say, issues involving civil rights as an area that would no longer be protected under 230. You also mentioned the FOSTA-SESTA legislation, which is the long acronym that I won't spell out, but it's legislation that removed immunity under Section 230 um, for sex trafficking and had the effect of a lot of websites that had personal ads, classified ads, platforms for sex workers, closed in response, not necessarily because of litigation, but because they were frightened of litigation. I think that you could look at that and say, okay, well, that shows that carve-outs are effective because they force these websites to close. I think I would take the view that, as I mentioned with an outright repeal, I think that you have to be really, really careful that you're not inadvertently chilling speech that is of the kind that you would want to keep online. Right. So in the case of FOSTA-SESTA, there were a lot of sex workers who said after the legislation was passed that this had 
caused harm for them in taking away ways to make money that they couldn't communicate with their friends and coworkers. And so I think that's really a good example of how reforming Section 230, maybe with too broad a brush, can potentially cause real problems. And then there's also the problem of, well, if you have a carve-out, then it's a little inflexible if you later decide, actually, we, we want to make this carve-out bigger, we want to make it smaller, that you then have to go back to the drawing board all over again. So it might sound appealing to begin with, but I do think that those are very real problems that legislators need to grapple with. Well, those are great points about the complications of reform in that particular area. In your writing, you have rightfully noted that internet risks often fall most heavily on vulnerable populations. You note that people who are affected by this often don't have the resources to hire a lawyer, and so therefore they have a hard time dealing with online harassment. Are there things we can do to improve the situation with those individuals? This is an extremely important point. People who have resources and recognition are far better positioned to deal with this kind of situation. As you say, they can hire a lawyer. They're more likely to know who they could reach out to to ask for help and have the time to figure out what to do. There's a great example of this in the New York Times reporting. Uh, so Kashmir Hill, the reporter, noted that negative posts started showing up online about her while she was investigating Guy Babcock's case. But the posts actually didn't make very much of a difference in her Google search results because she's been a reporter for a long time. She has a lot of Google results. Her prominence actually protected her. On the other hand, someone who's not as prominent, who's just starting out in life, right, like only has a LinkedIn page, might be a lot more affected. So the question, as you say, is what can be done to improve this? I think that some of these, these issues are really on a best addressed on a kind of a broad structural level. So as I mentioned, I think a lot of this is going to involve local police taking this seriously and understanding what these harms are and that they can do things to counter them. You could also make an argument for the federal government perhaps paying more attention. As I said, there are limited resources, but you could imagine potentially looking into bringing extortion charges against these websites if the facts merited that. I also think that there is space for new laws. So in the slander industry space, I do think that the extortion statute seems to cover that. But in the space of uh, non-consensual pornography and sextortion, for example, Benjamin Winnis and I have long been arguing for the need for a federal statute to prohibit sextortion because prosecutors often have a much easier time prosecuting it when the victim is a child than they do as an adult where it's ends up squished into extortion, hacking, that kind of thing, and that having a federal statute would help systematize those prosecutions and those investigations. There have been, for what it's worth, a rash of state laws against non-consensual pornography. And I believe one in, in Texas was just upheld by a court against a First Amendment challenge. So that is a positive development. The next thing I would say is just an increase in public awareness. And I, I will say... Starting in 2016, maybe a bit before, I really do think we have seen a dramatic increase in sort of public understanding of this kind of abuse as a problem. On the civil society level, there are more and more organizations and groups popping up to provide support. So the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative is one organization. It predates 2016, but they're doing great work. There are resources put together by people who have suffered this kind of abuse. So Zoe Quinn, who is a game developer who was targeted in a harassment campaign, has a website called Crash Override that essentially has 
resources, guides for people who are suffering, telling them, here's what you can do. Here's what you can tell the police. Here's what you can tell your family. Here's what to do with your internet accounts. And I do think that this doesn't solve the issue on a, on a systemic level, but it really is important for people who are harmed in this way to know that they are not the only one that this has happened to. In my own research, I've seen this more in the context of non-consensual pornography and sextortion, but I do think it applies to this kind of abuse and harassment broadly, where if you look at statements by victims of sextortion and non-consensual pornography, they'll often say they didn't know that this happened to other people, right? That they feel profoundly alone because their suffering is so solitary and they have no sense that there is a community of people who can help them, of other victims and survivors. And so bringing public light to these problems is helpful in a way, in and of itself. It's not sufficient, but I do think it's helpful just so people who are suffering know that they are not alone and that there are resources that they can can search out and people who will support them and understand what they're going through and won't shame them. And it's sad that this actually is happening to a lot of people. It's far more common than people believe, which is one of the reasons we're doing this podcast to try and raise people's awareness of this issue. So finally, do you have any personal pointers for the average person in terms of what he or she can do to protect their own reputations from harmful individuals? It's a great question. I think my, my answer is yes, I do. And in one sense, no, I don't. And what I mean by that is that on the yes, I do, there are very simple, easy things. Like one thing I tell people after I did all this extortion research is get a webcam cover. And what I mean by that is the, the little camera on your computer can be hacked so someone can look at you through your webcam. It is very easy just to stick a post-it note over that. You can buy little covers on Amazon. It's a super, super easy thing that you can do, and it has enormous benefits in terms of your, your own security and peace of mind. If you are you know, worried about hacking or something like that, obviously uh, a password manager is a great idea. There are lots of resources on Crash Override, which I mentioned, and the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative also has information about what you can do if you're suffering from something like this. So I do think all those resources are available and people should be aware of them. On the other hand, I also think it's important to emphasize that one of the reasons I think that this kind of abuse is so frightening to think about is that it's actually hard to protect against. There are individual things that might help, right? Getting a, getting a webcam cover, getting a password manager, and those do help. But on the other hand, part of what makes people vulnerable is just existing on the internet or existing in a world with other people, period. And in the way that the internet connects us all, it also makes us all vulnerable to abuses of those potential connections, which I think is what is frightening about this and why it's important for people to understand that it is a problem. And it's also why I would argue it's important to understand this on, on a systemic level, that there are individual things that individual people can do and resources for people who are suffering, but that to really get this into focus, understand it, try to grapple with it, we have to see it as a much bigger systemic issue that has to do with law enforcement, how the internet is governed, how people relate to one another, and how we treat people who are suffering. And those are 
big, heavy questions that are hard to deal with on an individual level. I'm hopeful, as I've said, that because there's been more attention brought to these issues in recent years, that maybe things are getting a little better. Google seems to be taking this seriously, but it does seem to me that there's going to be a long road ahead. It's funny, you mentioned the idea of the uh, camera cover. I first heard about this several years ago when someone had posted a picture of Bill Gates with his computer, and he had a little post-it note over at the camera on his uh, laptop. Oh, there uh, you go. I I was amused about. So uh, very high rating for that particular idea. And on the uh, password protector, I do that. But the other day I was counting, I think I have almost 140 different accounts that now require passwords. So it's like everybody wants you to sign in and and log in. And so there's been a great proliferation of passwords. So people do need to be very uh, careful on that front. So I want to thank Quinta for sharing her thoughts with us today. You have lots of terrific insights into this question, and it's uh, great to talk with you. At Brookings, we write regularly about digital technology, and you can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. Thank you very much for tuning in.